Thanks, Pastor Mike. And if you guys catch Pastor Mike out on the hallway, he has more of those Redbox promo codes that he's given away. <laughs> so you've got, you, you got to catch him out there, though. Good morning. How are you guys? Hey, uh, super fast, I want to extend a personal invitation to uh, two things. Next Sunday morning, if, if, you, if you're here, the, the hour that precedes is the 10 o'clock hour. We're, we're starting back up our like adult education classes and stuff. A lot of people will come to a service and then a class or a class and a service, whatever order. And it's just a great opportunity, kind of smaller setting, study sort of setting. Maybe it's a, there are classes on like you know, books of the Bible and topical things and parenting and stuff like that. So grab one of the... Uh, Equip bulletins or uh, brochure deals on your on your way out. It's just a pretty cool opportunity. And, and then and then secondly, I want to invite you to join me this Wednesday in the auditorium right across the hall here, our, our South Auditorium. This Wednesday night, we're we're starting back up our Wednesday night community, and I'm going to be doing a teaching series, a 12 week teaching series on wisdom. Wisdom for modern living, and there's there's kids programming and things like that going on. But it's just it's a great, somewhat smaller environment where we study and connect, and and just a, a cool opportunity. Hey, quick question. Let me see a show of hands. How many of you guys are under forty? Raise your hand. Nice. Okay, I'm with you. I'm in your group. Okay, but the the kind of bummer part. My wife keeps reminding me is like in three and a half months. All the people who didn't raise their hand, I'm in their group. I got I got to switch groups, and and like things are just different. You know, my wife keeps reminding me of like this new group thing because she's a couple years back still in the old group, and and so like this week, for instance, I went to uh, I went to the eye doctor and I went and saw Dr. Greg, and it's been like ten ten years since I've had my old prescription, and and so I got these new lenses, and at at the bottom of these lenses, it 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 makes things larger, it magnifies them. Because that's what well, you got to do that in a new group. you got to do that sort of thing. And then I'm finding out about other stuff, too. There's like, like when you go see a doctor, there's this, like doctor visits sometimes are different in the new group. Some really interesting things take place. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's because you're in the other group. Like, see, the new, we got like inside jokes in the new group because it's just crazy stuff happens. But I've just been thinking about like almost 40 years, like that's not possible. But it, it was 1974. That my, my mom and dad, Alan and Julie, drove me home from Poudre Valley Hospital to our home in Loveland. And listen, to this, they, they drove me home in a green 1967 Pontiac GTO with a white Cordova top. That's cool. Huh? I mean, you, I only went downhill from my coolness factor after that. But I remember as a little kid growing up in, in Loveland, and my grandma lived like two miles from our house. She was real close. My grandfather had died in 1976. And so she moved close to be with us. And... And so my brothers and I, we, we do like sleepovers, you know, at grandma's house. And, and I, I remember having these sleepovers. It was like this. We had this routine and it was always the same where she'd make dinner and she's this like phenomenal cook. And then and then we would sit down and we'd watch what I found out later were rather racy television shows like Love Boat and Fantasy Island. And which so I'd like a steady diet of that. So if you know me, that explains like a lot. Um, and then and then I'd eat a bowl of Quaker 100 percent natural cereal and then we go to bed but my favorite part, my favorite part, a lot of things I don't remember about sleeping over grandma's, but my favorite part was she would tell me a story. And so she'd tuck me into bed, she'd get me all situated and covers pulled up and lights off, and then she would lie down on the bed next to me and, and she would tell me a story. And I'd always ask for one of three stories, the same ones every time. I'd heard them hundreds of times. But it was either Peter, Paul, and Essen, Little Cosette, or a story of Little One Eye, Two Eyes, and Three Eyes. Which sounds a little creepy, but it's not that bad. 
And, and, and I knew every bit of these stories. Only bad part was is Grandma Joy would fall asleep like halfway through telling him. You know, I'd be like, Grandma, Grandma. So she'd wake, oh yeah, and she'd you know, pick up. No, that's not where you were, you were here. And I knew everything about him. To this day, I can tell all four of my kids every one of those stories in extreme detail. And I, I, think, I think Grandma Joy helped me love Jesus just a little bit more because she told stories. Because Jesus told stories. In fact, if you open up the Bible, the New Testament, the first couple of books are called the Gospels. And there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these first four books. And those are in there. We have the majority of Jesus' words captured. And like if you get one of the Bibles where his words are in red, all of his words, about one-third of all of his words were what Grandma Joy told. Stories. We call them parables. And this morning what I want to do is I want to look at one of those stories, one of those parables that I think... I think it's kind of challenging for a couple of reasons. It's kind of honestly one of these stories that like when you first hear it, you're kind of like, how did that get in the Bible? Like, that's a little weird. Um, so it's challenging, I think, number one, because it's like, it's kind of easy to misinterpret, especially for us. We're 21st century American, we're Westerners and all this sort of thing. And, but secondly, I think it's kind of a challenging parable because I think in the parable, Jesus puts his finger on kind of a, a key Western value, which is not a kingdom value. And that's this idea of this sort of extreme, rugged individualism which says, I'm accountable to no one, captain of my own destiny, my body, my mind, don't tell me what to do, what to think, or anything. I'm my own man, I'm my own woman. And, and, and it, and it kind of goes against that. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 16. And if you have your bulletin, turn it over. On the back, you can take some notes. There's a couple fill-in-the-blanks. And I want us to fill in the first blank before we read the passage because it kind of like orients us to what... What, what's going on? Who are you saying this to? So number one, if you want to fill that in, Jesus told this parable, not to tax collectors, he does that a lot, not to Pharisees, not to religious leaders, not to the community. He tells this parable, we're told in this, to his apprentices. This is like the inner circle, his disciples. So what he does is he, this, this is like a locker room talk, because they're all about this, and they're going about this kingdom thing that Jesus is doing, but he goes, come here guys, come here. And it's like he pulls him aside and he goes, okay, we're going to go out. But we need to have a locker room talk first. And I'm going to tell you what it is, how, how it is that we're going to go out. What's going to characterize how it is that we go out. And they're going, okay, go, give it to us. And he goes, listen to this story. And he starts in Luke chapter 16, verse 1. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot manage any longer. The manager said to himself, so this is like later, he's talking to himself. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. So that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses there. So he called in each one of his master's debtor. And he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, you take your bill, sit down, make it 450. That's a 50% reduction. Then he asked the second, how, mu how much do you owe my master? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill, make it 800. This is a 20% reduction. Now, verse 8 says later, after all this has happened, later, the, ma the, the master, this is the owner, the master 
commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. And now here's Jesus' commentary, locker room talk. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now, I think it's pretty clear what Jesus is saying here, right? As followers of Jesus, we should be deceptive and manipulative and lie and cheat and steal. And some of you are like, yeah, I knew I like this Christianity thing. This is cool. Kind of it's like, a, you know, lets me do whatever. Maybe we're missing something. Maybe we're missing. Help, look, look a little closer at this with me here. Help me understand this. So the characters, there are basically three different groups. There's the master. Okay, the master, he's, he's the landowner. He owns the majority of the land that all the community lives on. And the community is made up of his tenants, people who, who, who farm the land and they pay him in produce. And then there's the steward. He's the estate manager. What he's been given are these accounting books. And the accounting books are what allow him to do his job. This tenant owes the master this much, this much, and he works with them. How much are you paying and what's the interest and all this stuff? The accounting books are the tools that he's been given to run his job. Now, what happens is a report of misconduct reaches the ears of the master. And the master excuses the steward, tells him that you've got to turn in the books. Go get these. I want them. Because you can't, you can't work here anymore. Now, Jesus' listeners, when they first hear this, first they'd be a little shocked because in traditional Middle Eastern setting, negotiation always happens. Squabbling always happens. Like, especially if you're going to dismiss them at this high of a level, you could have days of negotiation. That would just be expected. You know, he could, he could be like, Master, I served you. My father served your father. My, my grandfather served your grandfather. Surely you're not going to throw away a three-generational relationship over a misunderstanding, are you? He could say, the people I work with, they're crooks. But he doesn't employ any of those. He's, he's silent and he walks away. And like in many cultures, silence indicates guilt. He is guilty as charged. And so the steward responds in verse 3. He's alone and he says this to himself. The manager said to himself, what, what shall I do now? My master's taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. And then, and then the idea, he gets an idea. Here's the seed of the idea. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, meaning in this house, he's working in the house of the master. When I lose my job in this house, people will welcome me into their houses, meaning I'll have another job waiting. So his goal is to, I need to create an opportunity for another job here. Well, how's he going to do that? Well, here's the data that he has to work with. He goes, okay, let's see. How do I do this? First, first piece of the data is, I was dismissed in private. Only the master and I had the conversation. None of the other servants know. No other helpers. The community doesn't. No one knows but the master and I. Second piece of data is I'm still holding the accounting books. This is, this is the power that I have to, to rule, to represent the master, to make decisions. And so he's saying to himself this. I need to do something to make myself so valuable to the community that when I lose this job, I've got another one waiting for me. That's his goal. And he's got one last card to play. 
So here's what he does. Under the pretense, the assumption that he's bringing a message from the master to the community, he has some servants go out and, and, and call in each member of the community to come in. And then he conducts interviews, but notice what they are. These are private interviews, one at a time. Why does he do that? Each, each interview, notice, is tailor-fit to that person. He kind of assesses, let's see, what are they willing to do? Uh, 50% to you. See, uh, 20%. He has these unique conversations. If he did a group meeting, the whole community's there, that could get out of hand really fast, right? One guy across the circle raises an eyebrow. This sounds a little fishy. Someone else reacts. Pretty soon, it's totally out of control. He loses control. So he's smart. He does individual interviews with, with each one of them. Secondly, he does something. This, this is really unique. He has each one of the people, the tenants, record the debt reduction in their own hand. Why does he do that? Think about it. Whose handwriting is it? It's not his. It's theirs. What has he just done? He's made them a partner. They're equally guilty of embezzlement. He's brought them, unknowingly at first, into this circle of embezzlement. So now they can't lodge a complaint in the future with the master against him. Now you might go, wait a second. That's, that's not a genius. That's stupid. Master's going to find out. He's going to still fire him, probably have him thrown in jail. He's going to require all the money to be paid back, maybe even take the land away from the people if he finds out they were involved. How is that smart? That's dumb. Well, again, we're, we're missing something. This is traditional Middle Eastern culture. Traditional Middle Eastern culture is what's called an honor-shame culture. Places in Asia, I lived, after I graduated from my undergrad, I, I went over and lived in South Korea for a year. And it was an honor-shame culture. Now, here's, here's the basic idea in an honor-shame culture. Your, your honor, as an individual, it's preserved not so much by the conversations you have behind closed doors, it's preserved by how you're viewed publicly by the community, how you're understood. So publicly, the tenants, the debtors, they can say, I, I had no idea. Had I known, I never would have been involved in such a thing. Privately, they can accept a little deal that enriches them as, as well as the steward. Remember, all the conversations were in private. Who knows what was said? And the steward has to do this quickly because he's, he's, got, he's got to get the accounting books back to the master. Now, these reductions that he gives, they're like phenomenal. They're, they're, they're huge. The first one, remember, 900 gallons of oil. And he says half of that. 450 of it, don't worry about it. 450 would be the equivalent of like your salary for a year and a half. Imagine your bank calls you, okay, if you have a mortgage and they're like, hey, hey, come on in. You know that whole mortgage thing you've been paying on or if you have an apartment, you know how much you're, you're paying monthly rent? Let's just go ahead and lop that sucker in half. Can you imagine? Now, beyond that, this isn't one individual. The whole community are his tenants. Imagine if Fort Collins, okay, if, if, if Greeley, if Windsor, if, if Loveland, imagine if us as a community, if we as a community, all of a sudden our, our, our corporate debt was lopped in half. What would that do to us? I mean, it would, be a, it would be a financial windfall for our community in significant ways. And so what, what do they do? Well, the tenants hear this one by one and they start going back to the community. And what happens when they all get together? 
when they all realize that, man, we've got this like corporate like economic windfall. They start celebrating like this is awesome. This is the best thing ever. A huge party. Who's the, who's the, who's the uh, party all about? Who's being honored by the party? It's the master, right? The, the most generous man who's ever lived. It's in honor of him. That's a, that's a cultural value. Remember the honor-shame culture? So you have this huge party. Now what, what should the master do? Master has two choices. Legally... The master can go to the community and say, whoa, 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 none of this was okayed by me. You owe it all. This guy's going to jail. What happens to that party? Right? It's all about, yeah, he's the best guy in the world. And all of a sudden, wait a second. That's not fair. You're unjust. This guy was representing you and you've been duped by your, by your steward. That's shameful. Okay. So he loses honor in that culture, huge cultural value. That's one option. What's the second option? The master can remain quiet. He can pay the price of the steward's deception. And he can continue to enjoy the reputation as the most generous man who has ever walked the face of the earth. The steward wins. That's how he did it. That's how he's ingenious. Because he's so shrewd. Now, he's still fired. <laughs> But, here's the other part, he's got another job waiting. See, eventually the community is going to find out one by one, conversations happen, you know how that goes. The community is going to find out, they won't trust him, but they will be amazed at his daring, amazed at his intelligence. And they will give him a job, you know why? Because he's got dirt on him. He's got their handwriting, right? So they're never going to lodge a complaint against this guy. They're going to give him a job. And secondly, they're going to want to keep a close eye on him. Better the evil genius work for you than for your opposition. Right? Um, Abraham Lincoln is famous for wanting the smartest of his enemies to be on his cabinet because he'd rather be them be on his cabinet than his opponent's cabinet. Right? You know the old phrase, um, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Now, this is a really interesting part here. How the master responds. Look at verse 8 with me. The master, it says, commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Okay? Now, let's sum it all up. Listen, listen to how shrewd this guy was, okay? Remember, only a couple hours. He's got a short period of time. Listen, listen to what he does. This is what he's accomplished. The steward and the master are now heroes in the community. The village has experienced an absolute economic windfall and the community will find a place for him to have a job. That's huge. You guys, you guys ever like watch a movie or a TV show and the protagonist in it is like, he's not really noble or she's not really noble. She's kind of bad. She's, you know, a little bit crooked. My wife and I were watching this, this series, um, kind of this mini series thing. And the main person who starts out, and you think, oh, yeah, they're good. Well, pr pretty quickly you realize, like, this person's pretty rotten. Like, they're, you know, they're doing all these things that are bad stuff. But you find yourself as the season goes, you're, 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 like, rooting for them. You know, you're like, oh, I want to get caught yet. Maybe one more episode or something like that. Why is that? Because they're so good at being bad, right? It's like even amidst their rottenness and their lies and all this stuff, you see something that you go, wow. You know what that is? Look how, look how patient they are. Look how, they, look how much foresight. Look at that shrewdness 
And even in the baddest of people, you go, man, look at that quality. They're rotten and they deserve to go to jail. But I got to say, they're shrewd. See, we naturally have that sort of a response when we see that. And a lot of people, we read this text and we go, why would Jesus point out this guy who has all these characteristics that Jesus is constantly against in people? And yet he holds them up and says, look at how shrewd he was. Well, remember the audience. Jesus told it, remember, not to the Pharisees, not to the tax collectors, not to the community. He told it to his apprentices. This was the locker room conversation. Verse 8, he says, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. And then remember, Jesus gives this sort of commentary. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. Okay, so what? Let's, let's go kind of application. What in the world does that have to do with me? If you, uh, if you have your outlines, second point in there, if you want to fill this in. What's Jesus trying to teach? I, I think a couple things. Number, number what, or the first thing he's trying to teach is number two in your outlines. Using the, using the power of story, Jesus is trying to root out a dangerous misconception. And here's the misconception. That being a Christian is fundamentally, at its core, primarily about being nice. Philip Yancey wrote a book a few years ago called The Jesus I Never Knew. And in this book, he talks about an experience he had. He said, I kind of stumbled across this book written by Charles Dickens, and it was written by uh, Dickens when he was older, as elderly, and he wrote it to his kids, and it was like, I want you to know what Jesus is like, so you know, here's what he's like. And Yancey said, as I, as I read this book, the Jesus that emerged from Charles Dickens' book was this sweet Victorian nanny who sort of pat, you know, patted kids on the head and gave good advice, like, now be nice to your mummies and your daddies. And he said, this Jesus, like, had no rough edges. He was just kind and pleasant and, and sweet. And then, you know, almost like, a, almost like a Mr. Rogers before the age of kids' television. And then, and then Yancey said, but then I started reading the Gospels, and I thought to myself, how would telling people to be nice to each other get a man crucified? What kind of government is going to execute Mr. Rogers or Captain Kangaroo? <laughs> See, number three, rather than being fundamentally nice, Jesus was shrewd. Jesus was not fundamentally nice. Jesus was subversive. He was shrewd. Think about, think about just some examples. Jesus refused to answer questions when he knew they weren't really honest questions. They were kind of smoke screens or they were ways to kind of trap him or whatever as you read through the gospel. Jesus told people their true heart motives when they appeared to be upfront and transparent and honest, but really it was bent towards selfishness, it's bent toward pride. Jesus made a whip and he drove out the self-seeking materialist from the temple courts. He told respected religious leaders that they were a brood of snakes and sons of the devil. He scandalized the self-righteous. And he gave righteousness to the scandalized. He met and he talked alone with a woman of less than uh, questionable character. And he gave her for the first time in her life dignity. He touched and he healed people like lepers who, who, who had for, for years known nothing but isolation. They had seen nothing but disgust in people's eyes. And he gave them value. Jesus was good, but you cannot call him nice. 
So here's the question. If, if, if Jesus' fundamental quality is not nice, here's, here, here's an application question. If you're an apprentice of Jesus, if you've begun, if you've thrown your life in him, should your fundamental quality be some sort of a placid niceness? No. I would suggest a very different quality. Not N-I-C-E, but W-I-S-E. Wise. Number three, being wise is the result of two things, almost like a chemical compound. It's shrewd and innocent. Do you ever recall hearing those two? If you've, if you've ever read the Gospels, do you ever recall hearing shrewd and innocent put together before? Because that's kind of like a weird marriage of words. You're like, that, that's an odd kind of compound. Who would, who would do that? Well, Jesus did. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, another locker room conversation. Jesus kind of pulls him, to, you know, pulls him aside again, and, and he goes, okay, we're going out. This is what it's going to look like. And listen to his words in Matthew 10, 16. Jesus said, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. How do sheep go out among wolves? Well, he said, therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. So what exactly? Here's the big question. You might be going, wait a second. I've always thought shrewd was kind of a bad thing. You're telling me Jesus is like capturing shrewdness and saying it's a, it's a kingdom value. What, what in the world? This is just confusing. Okay, well, let's define it then. Okay, let's, let's define what is shrewdness. Number four in your outlines. And now, now th- go slow. Think with me on this one because it's kind of a packed definition. But I think once we get it, it's like super freeing. Number four, the definition of shrewdness is the expert application of leverage. Let me explain that a little bit more if you want to fill in these blanks. It's understanding how something works. Okay? It might be a machine. It might be a business. It might be a relationship. It might be a sports team. Understanding how something works. And then taking that understanding and apply the right force. Not too much, not too little. At the right time. And in the right place. So the right force, the right place, the right time. Now think about this. Was Jesus shrewd in this sense? Did Jesus apply the right force to the right place and at the right time? How about the right force? There's this interesting story in uh, just a couple chapters earlier in this. Luke chapter 9. Jesus is going with his disciples and he's heading to Jerusalem. And they pass through this area called Samaria. Samaritans didn't like Jews. Jews didn't like Samaritans. Their biggest debate was like, where do we worship? And when they found out you're going to Jerusalem, wrong place, you can't stay with us. Culturally, that's a big deal. Hospitality's big, bad thing. So they got to walk, basically keep going, and they should have stopped. And Jesus' followers are ticked off. And so they go, hey, Jesus, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy these guys? And Jesus is like, no, a little bit too much force. Now, the text says he rebuked his followers. And he said, no. Well, now that, that was an example of something that had happened in the Old Testament. And they're wanting to know what's, what's the right force? How much, what do we do? How do we respond to that? Jesus understood the right force. Did Jesus understand the right place? There's this guy in the, in the Gospels called the rich young ruler. The only reason we know he's the rich young ruler, it's not because he walked up and said, hi, I'm rich. He walked up to Jesus and he goes, Jesus, I am all in. Throwing my whole life in with you. Anything you want. I'm, I'm holding nothing back. I'm in this whole thing. I'm an apprentice. You know, I'm all about you. And Jesus kind of stopped and went, sell everything you have. The guy said, what? 
And he, Jesus put his finger on the place on his heart. And he said, that's the one place that you're in bondage. It's an absolute idol in your life that controls you. It rules you and your soul's dying because of it. It's smothering you. He put his finger right. And the guy said, we're told in the text that he walked away sad because it was like this. Another time Jesus met with this woman at this well. And he starts talking to her. And then she gets into this theological theological debate. Do we worship in this place or that place? And how do we do it? And what's all going everywhere? And Jesus just kind of stops and goes, go get your husband. And she goes, I don't, I don't have a husband. And he goes, you're right. You've been married five times. And the guy you're with now is not your husband. And she's like, are you, you're, like, you're like a prophet or something? Because he put his finger on the one place in her life, relationships. She had been trying to fulfill herself. If I just have the right relationship, if I just find the right person, I'll have meaning, I'll have value, I'll have purpose. And he put his finger right there. And he goes, that's it for you. Jesus understood the right force. He understood the right place. What about the right time? Was Jesus concerned about time? The very first miracle recorded in the Gospels. He's at the wedding in Cana. And someone asked him to do something to make, uh, do something that would essentially make it re- people realize kind of who he is. And he says, my time hasn't come yet. And then as you read the rest of the Gospels, he keeps saying, no, my time hasn't, no, my time hasn't come. No, my time hasn't, no, my, and then there's this moment, he's like in mid-conversations, it says these Greek people walked up to him and started asking him a question. And he just goes, the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is Jewish language for him going to the cross. Just the right moment, just the right time. A couple months, we're going to celebrate Christmas here. That's around the big 40 for me. Not a good time, but um, we read in the story, Christmas story. Remember what they say every time? In the fullness of time, God gave his son, born of a woman, blah, blah, blah. In the fullness of time, God applied the right force at just the right place and at just the right time. Do you know why? Because God is shrewd. See, being shrewd does not mean being angry. It doesn't mean being attacking. It doesn't mean being dishonest. It means you understand how something works. Like you give critical thought to it. And then you apply the right force at the right time and at just the right place. One of my, one of my favorite kind of like tagline statements from the Old Testament comes from the book of Chronicles. And as you can guess, like the name of it, Chronicles, it's just chronicling like there's this people in Israel and this people and then there's this tribe and there's this group and all that sort of thing. And it gets to this, this one group called the men of Issachar. I love this statement. It says the men of Issachar in First Chronicles 12.32, the men of Issachar who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. You could replace that with the word shrewd. I pray that that's true of me. I pray that is true of us as a community of Timberline Church. God, help us to understand the times and to know what we should do. Help us to keep our finger on the pulse of culture, to know what's going on around me. Help me to be shrewd. See, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have a commission. You're called to be a a kingdom bearer, to bring these sort of shafts of light into the places that God's already put you. But you're, you're, just, you're not just a kingdom bear. You're called to be a shrewd kingdom bear. In 1893, there was a $10,000 congressional appropriation established called the RFD, the Rural Free Delivery. Now, up until this point, Americans, if they wanted to get their mail, like they had to get on their horse and like ride into town. To get it. Well, the Rural Free Delivery brought their mail to them. It was just like brand new channel. 
And there were two entrepreneurs by the name of Aaron Montgomery Ward and Richard Sears. And seeing this new distribution channel for their products, they produced so many catalogs that, that like over 100 years ago, their catalogs were the second most widely read books in America, right behind the Bible. They shrewdly utilized this new technology. See, I would suggest that you, if you're an apprentice of Jesus, you need to think of yourself as in the R&D department of the kingdom of God. The research and development department of the kingdom of God. You need to ask the question, what do I have? What do I do? What am I that I can leverage in significant ways for this God kingdom thing that he's talking about? How, how, how can I see things in a new way? I've got a friend of mine named Lisa. Lisa is, is involved in one of our ministries here called You Count. If, if you haven't been around Timberline for a little while, You Count is this ministry where, where we pour huge resources into going to places like India in these red light districts where these tiny little girls, some boys, two, three, four, five, six year old little girls, they're sold into the sex slave industry and they're used till they're 16, 18, and they're just dumped out and they die a few years later. And they're kept in cages, some of them. And they go over there and they rescue these little girls and they put them in this home of hope. And they ask the question, well, how, do, how do we keep them there? What do we do? They don't have any skills. Well, let's teach them to like sew. Let's teach them to make stuff. And then we'll buy their stuff and we'll bring it over here and we'll sell it. And so we're doing that. And so Marketplace is sort of the arm of you count. And we've got Marketplace products in our cafe and our bookstore. And we're always trying to sell. Well, Lisa, years ago when this was just getting started, if you were to ask Lisa, are you shrewd? She'd be like, no. I mean, Lisa's eccentric and impulsive and like the life of the party. You would love her. But you might not go like, that's a shrewd woman right there. And so Lisa said, well, like, what can I do? How can, how can, what can I do? And she said, what am I good at? Well, I'm a good salesman. I could sell like ice to Alaskans. And so, and so she goes, I'll sell this stuff. And so she got involved and she's like running this area. And so she'll find out like, hey, what are the things we're not selling? And they'll be like, well, these green scarves. And she's like, give them to me. I'll sell them. And so she comes to these kind of conferences and she puts a green scarf on and she's like, these are the latest things in Prague. You guys need these things. And women are like, give me up, give me up. You know, come up. This is shrewd. Pastor Mike was up here earlier talking about the, uh, you know, these random uh, outreach uh, endeavors, ways that um, serve 6.8, which is kind of the ministry arm that is just blanketing the city, serving in such huge ways. Do you know how serve 6.8 got started? Because Pastor Mark Orphan and his team said this. They said, God, show us what they called open spaces. What that means is places in our area that it's open in the sense of a huge need and no one's helping. Okay? They said, God, show us the right place. That's part of shrewdness. And then they said, God, show us the right time. What's the time? And then there was a single mom and she had a hole in her roof and she had four kids and... And then there was a high park fire and then there was a flood and it was the right time. And then they said, show us, show us the right force. And that force came in the form of sacrificial, self-giving, just what these people needed. That is shrewd. Jesus was one time asked, boil it down, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? You know what he said? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart your soul, your strength, and your mind. Your mind. Part of loving God with your mind, I believe, means using your creative right brain and your analytical left brain. 
It means looking for new ways to leverage what it is that is out there. What are the ways that, that I can leverage those things in the spheres that God has placed me? See, Jesus used all manner of tools to leverage. Think about it. You read the Gospels, he's always using like humor in his relationships. He's using generosity in his relationships. He's using laughter. He's using bluntness. He's always leveraging these things for kingdom end purposes and good outcomes. Rick Lawrence wrote a book a few years ago just simply called Shrewd. That's a nice, good title, right? And in the book, he says, you don't realize, but shrewdness is like a daily necessity. It doesn't matter what you're doing. He, he says, shrewdness is why some marriages are marked by deeper intimacy and joy. Shrewdness is why some parents mold mature, enjoyable, and savvy children. Shrewdness is why some businesses continue to grow during hard times. Shrewdness is why some physicians are constantly better at getting their patients well. Shrewdness is why people leave behind them a wake of healing and restoration. Shrewdness is why some households in our neighborhood live better with less. Shrewdness is why some people are closer and more continually close to Jesus in spirit and in practice. Shrewdness, you guys, is essential for life. That's why, that, that's why this Wednesday night, we're going to take the whole 12 weeks of this fall semester and say, let's look at wisdom. Like, how, how do I live a wise life? What does that mean in my relationships and the things I have and people interact with? And what does that mean? What would that look like to be a wise person to make wise decisions? And see, I would suggest it's because we've never viewed Jesus as the shrewdest man who's ever lived, that this is just off our radar. We don't think of shrewdness as being integral to our apprenticeship with Jesus. But Jesus sure seemed to say that it is, didn't he? And that's why Jesus told this parable. So one last question remains. How does innocence come into play? Um, shrewdness is to apply, let's see, the right force to the right place at the right time. Wait a second. Isn't that just a fancy word for manipulation? I mean, this is, you know, think about crooked politicians apply the right force to the right place at the right time. A bad businessman apply the right force to the right place at the right time. Evil, uh, you know, kings and rulers apply the right force to the right place at the right time. Your mother-in-law applies the right force to the right place at the right time. Your kids. Uh, so I, wait, how is this not just crude manipulation? Well, here's the difference. Manipulation is about doing it for the benefit of yourself. Manipulation is about trying to create an environment, a situation, relationship the way you think it should be, even if you've got the best intentions, the way you think it should go. Kingdom shrewdness is about following Jesus's way of leveraging beauty. Leveraging generosity, leveraging bluntness, but all the while dying to self. All the while embracing self-sacrificial love, all the while seeking the flourishing of others. See, Jesus tells the story of this guy who was put in charge of some account books, remember? This guy was far from innocent, okay, not innocent, but he was shrewd. And he made use of what little time he had with what little time he had with these particular account books, because he knew that he was going to be fired, and he needed to set things up for when it was done. Finally, in verse 9, we read this. 
Jesus still using the selfish, manipulative, sinful, rotten language of this guy says this. I tell you, use worldly wealth. That means the accounting books that you have. To gain friends for yourself. That means influencing the people that God has put in your life. So that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. See, someday you're going to be fired. Not from a job, but this life will end. And God will say, I entrusted you with some accounting books. Remember that money? Remember your job? Remember those relationships? Remember that spouse? Remember that neighbor lived right across the hallway from you, the guy who lived right next door? Remember, remember that creative ability that you had? Remember your sexuality? Remember your hurt and your brokenness and those scars in your life? Those are all accounting books. How did you handle them? Were you, did you even know they were accounting books? Were you wise with them? Were you as wise as a serpent and as gentle as a dove? Or did you kind of cook the books? Was it really all about you at the end of the day? Or, did you, or were you just careless? You never really thought of them. You might even say, I don't have any of those things. I've just got time. I just sit around. That's an accounting book. Time. How are you handling that accounting book? Are you shrewd? Because see, even, even this creep... <laughs> In Jesus' parable, knew his time was short. He knew he was losing his job. And he knew he had to make the most of his influence with his accounting books before he got fired. And so I close by some words from the Apostle Paul, one of the shrewdest followers of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul said this. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed. That means your accounting books will be settled. You'll be asked how shrewd you were with them. For his deeds done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good, that means shrewd, or bad, that means careless, be kingdom shrewd. Would you pray with me? Father, we recognize that it, it was out of shrewdness that at just the right time you gave your son to come to just the right place, our broken lives, and apply just the right force, his self-sacrificial death. You are shrewd, oh God. Father, I pray that this week as those of us who, who, who would call ourselves apprentices of Jesus, that, that we would really just, maybe just be quiet for a little while and explore, just sit before you and say, God, what are the accounting books that you've put in my life? Is it relationships, people I know? Is it my position, my career? Maybe it's a grandparent like Grandma Joy. Maybe you've got little kids that you're in charge of. Maybe it's abilities you have. Whatever it might be. God, show us what our accounting books are. God, would you show us how we can be innocently shrewd to apply the right force to just the right place at just the right time. And may our dealings with others, God, move a situation to a kingdom outcome 
which would reflect your self-sacrificing kingdom. And may we respond to Jesus' charge to move more shrewdly into our lives, while all the while being anchored by a heart of innocence. We pray this in the shrewd and innocent name of our King, Jesus. Amen. And now for the benediction. May God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, make you faithful in his calling, fruitful for his kingdom, and shrewd in his service. Amen? Amen. Hey, our prayer team is going to be up front. We would love to pray with you. Hope you guys have a fabulous week and hope to see you guys Wednesday night. Love you and have a great rest of your day.